I think it's because we're always measuring ourselves. Everything we do is measured. You go out for an easy run, you see your pace, you compare it to how fast you ran yesterday. You go to a race, you finish 10th, or you're a minute off your PB, or you PB by a minute and you're ecstatic. You're always comparing yourself to who you were yesterday and who you want to be in the future. And then while you're comparing yourself to you, you're also comparing yourself to other people who are doing the same things that you do. And you see so-and-so run amazing. You're like, oh, that's great. But like, why am I not running amazing? You know, and so you're, you're just always asking yourself these questions. And I think measuring yourself in that way really leads you to, yeah, it's not to prescribe too much self-worth to the numbers and just being like, okay, if I could just run 210, in the marathon, I'll be happier, you know, and it's it doesn't feel that way because then you run 210 and you were fifth and <laughs> somebody else ran 209 or whatever. So it's hard. It's just the nature of our sport is that we're always measuring ourselves against each other and ourselves. And if you're not in a good place with that, you know, you can kind of go down a rabbit hole. up everyone thank you so much for tuning in to the morning shakeout podcast that was noah drotti that you just heard from a few seconds ago and i'm your host mario fraioli every week on this show i glean insight and inspiration from athletes coaches and personalities in the sport of running through long-form conversations that are a bit different from the ones that you'll hear elsewhere in addition to the podcast i publish a weekly newsletter it's also called the morning shakeout where you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running along with a roundup of things that i've been thinking about reading and listening to lately subscribe today at the morning slash subscribe and you'll start receiving it next week Okay, Noah Drotti. This guy is one of my favorite people in the sport, and it was a treat to have him back on the podcast. The first time was almost exactly three years ago on episode 23, so be sure to give that one a listen if you haven't already. Noah is as blue-collar as they come, and that's part of what I love about him. He's a Division Three alum from DePaul University in Indiana, and he ran 209.09 at the Marathon Project last December, making him the ninth fastest American marathoner of all time. He lives and trains in Boulder, Colorado with the Roots Running Project, which, as we talked about in this episode, has done more with less than any other elite training group in the U.S. In addition to being a great athlete, Noah is also a big fan of the sport. We recorded this episode just a few days ago on Friday and spent the first few minutes of the show talking about the first day of action at the Olympic Games in Tokyo. From there, Noah told me why he's at an interesting point of his professional running career right now, what it was like to lose sponsorship after having a breakout race last fall, how he's thinking about the place competitive running holds in his life right now and moving forward, and a lot more. A big thank you to New Balance for supporting this episode of the podcast. Their fuel cell line are their fastest shoes for any occasion, whether you're racing, working out, or just running hard for the hell of it. I want to tell you about the new Fuel Cell Rebel V2. It is hands down my favorite running shoe right now. It is so fun to run in. I've been using them for all of my speed workouts, both on the roads and on the track. 
and I am hooked. The best way I can describe the Fuel Cell Rebel V2 is lively. This shoe is super light, it's incredibly responsive, and offers good protection underneath my feet. I think it's the perfect workout shoe, and I've been using it all the time. Check it out today at newbalance.com and consider adding a pair to your rotation. This episode is also brought to you by Gooder. Man, I just love these sunglasses. Not only do they look good, they don't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. Best of all, they're super fun. They come in a number of awesome styles and colors. I'm personally a big fan of the OGs, and my favorite colors are a Ginger Soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. Gooders are also super affordable, with most pairs coming in at just 25 to 35 bucks a piece, which makes them way more appealing than those expensive shades that you're almost guaranteed to crush or lose. So if you'd like to support me in the podcast, treat yourself to a pair or two or maybe three of Gooders and head over to Gooder.com slash Mario and get 15% off your entire order. That's G-O-O-D-R.com slash Mario. That's M-A-R-I-O to get 15% off your order. Your face will thank you. Okay, please enjoy my uninterrupted conversation with Noah Drotty. We're having this chat on Friday morning. The Olympics are underway. The men's 10,000 meter final was this morning. There were some prelims earlier in the day, men's steeplechase, women's 800, sprint events, mixed relays. I thought it'd be kind of fun to just sort of BS about the Olympics a little bit if you'd be into it. Yeah, for sure. Let's definitely do that. Were you up early to watch the men's 10,000? I was. It was uh, 5.30 Boulder time, so I rolled out of bed, put on my Joe Klecker shirt, and <laughs> I sat, in, sat in front of the, the TV pretty early this morning. What did you think of the race? Um, I, I thought it was great. I think everyone expected um, kind of a fast pace, and maybe that didn't totally materialize, but the conditions were, were brutal, and the, mm-hmm. those guys went um, super deep. Um, which was really impressive. Uh, in those conditions, you really don't have a choice. I thought Grant Fisher um, performed incredibly well. You know, I feel like he's always like a little underrated, but he's you know obviously one of the best guys in the country. Um, so that was really cool to see him finish fifth. Yeah, that was a big result for him, and I really thought he might have had a shot to sneak in, but he was in, I mean, if we're being honest, pretty terrible position at mm-hmm. the gun or at the bell, I should say, and just was in a box that he couldn't get out of, and things were really cranking at that point, and it was tough to to make up ground, but I really thought, I was like, oh, I'm like, Mohamed's going to be on the medal stand. Um, he made that move with a little less than two laps to go, and I, I thought he could hold on to it. Uh, and I was a bit bummed to see him kind of get rolled up there at the end, but it was an exciting, it was an exciting race. And I really think, you know, the times are almost irrelevant. Um, I like seeing competition. I was, I was pretty stoked to see so many guys still in it with just a couple laps to go. Yeah, for sure. It's always like, it's always so, so exciting to see a big group hit the bell and I think there were probably like eight guys still in that lead pack. Um, and, you know, it's just going to come down to a, an awesome sprint. And it's always it's always so thrilling to see an American guy up there. I mean, we've been treated to it more and more over the over the years. But, uh, yeah, there's something just super cool about seeing Grant Fisher kicking with, you know, the Giants 
of track and field. And, uh, you know, no surprise, I think in the, in the top three, um, you know, the, those were the best guys in the field, but, uh, yeah, just always an exciting race in the 10 K. Yeah. I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, going into it, those are the three guys that I had on the metal stand and I had no idea how it was actually going to shake up. And I mean, they were less than, I mean, they were like half a second apart basically from one to three at the end. I mean, it's kind of anyone's, you know, anyone's guess with 150 to go, who's going to roll across first, but to, to Grant Fisher, I mean, that was just a, a really valiant effort. I mean, he, he's so, so good. And I mean, this year was a breakout year for him in a lot of ways, but he is like, kind of overlooked a lot. I don't know if it's because he's so young or Bowerman's sort of so quiet. He's pretty quiet, I think, and doesn't do a ton of media. But, I mean, that was a huge race for him, uh, and it's going to give him a lot of confidence for the years to come. Yeah, I think he needs to start a YouTube channel. That's the only <laughs> way. That's the only way forward. Uh, but, yeah, he's super quiet, kind of flies under everybody's radar. And uh, But, yeah, it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody at this point to see him up there. And he's still going to run the 5,000 here in Tokyo. So we haven't seen the last of him at these games. Yeah, if he can, you know, that that was a nice preview of his kick against world-class athletes. And so, you know, if you're there with a the lap to go, you run the race 10 times, you're going to get different results every time. So, he, yeah, he's got a shot at a medal for sure. I mean, we're a couple biased Homer Americans here. You mentioned you had your Joe Klecker shirt on as you were watching yeah. this morning. How'd you feel about his race and Woody Kincaid, who finished right in front of him? I, I think um, I think both of those guys are probably sitting in their rooms a little disappointed. But um, I mean, I texted Joe right after that. I was just so proud of him. I mean, this is a guy who never won an NCAA championship. He is in his you know first full-on year as a pro and he ran 28 15 in horrible conditions at the olympic games it's like that guy has nothing um you know to be sorry about and his build-up was just so fantastic i don't know if you follow him on strava but he's a great follow if you want to feel bad about yourself um and then uh woody i don't know personally but uh you know it just it, it was a tough it was tough out there and Woody's an amazing athlete. And I think you run the race again. He's, he could finish right where Grant was just wasn't quite his day, you know? Yeah, I agree with all of that. I mean, I think the conditions had a huge effect on a lot of the athletes who weren't as high as we might've thought, or maybe would have liked. I mean, I saw Woody pull his arm sleeves off at one point in the race. Yeah. Like, he's hot. I'm like, yeah. he is roasting out there. And I mean, those are meant to have some sort of a cooling effect, but they clearly weren't doing that for him out there. And I just, you know, I, I don't know. I can't be in his head or anything like that, but I don't think he was, you know, having an A plus day, but he never, he never relented or, or quit. I mean, he ran the best race that he could and had a solid result. And same with Joe. I mean, he's had a hell of a season and who knows if for he'll sure. shut it down after this or if he's got some stuff planned for the rest of the summer, early fall. But I mean, here's a guy, as you mentioned, was never an NCAA champion at Colorado first year pro. I think he's PR'd in everything from the 1500 to the 10,000 this season, like rather significantly he got on an yeah. Olympic team his first year out of school. And I mean, he really got his first dose of high level international competition this morning. Uh, this, at, this was his first time out of the country. Yeah. He, at the, at the Olympic the games. 
So, I mean, that's just, I mean, that's just, that's just huge. And to, to hang in as he did, I, I read some quotes from him afterward. He's like, you know, I did what I could. He's like, I competed as hard as I could. I didn't, you know, take anything for granted when I passed one. He's like, that's the, the best that I had today. And I'm sure he's a little bit disappointed, but you got to be really proud of that effort. And it gets me excited, honestly, to just continue to follow the rest of his career. And also like what something like this is going to do for American distance running in general moving forward. Yeah. I mean, the Olympics are just brutal. Like you have a guy like Joe Klecker and if he has a, a B to B minus day, you know, just measured against that level of competition, you know, it looks like someone might be like, oh, he was out of it. He didn't have a great race, but like he, you're running against the best guys in the world. You know, it's just like, it's a different measuring stick. I got to go off on a little bit of a tangent. You mentioned following Joe on Strava, which I recommend everyone does. Someone the other day, like basically compiled all of his training and put it into an Excel sheet so you could see it all in one handy place. But my my question for you, because I see this on Strava from you from time to time what are these clecker miles that you mentioned in some of your titles i was like next time i talk to Noah, i'm going to ask him about clecker miles so I, I think the craziest part about joe's training is is how quickly he runs his easy days um and that's like you know all the pros in boulder like that's definitely a topic of discussion like you know how fast you run your easy days you see what joe did on it it's like we're not really talking about his workouts so much as we are like his four or five mile doubles um <laughs> but because because he runs so collector miles are easy miles at six minute pace oh to be young and spry yeah which which i think you know you'll see him crush your workout and you're like okay that's impressive but yeah the next day he'll run 10 miles at 605 and the title of his run will just be like easy miles legs felt great and you're just like how how is this possible i think i saw earlier this week one of his first runs in the olympic village was you know four or five mile shakeout 542 pace just cruising around um yeah no big no big deal off the plane just just let it roll but i mean i guess for for a guy who's running you know sub 430s for 6.2 miles in a row maybe it doesn't feel all that hard at the age of what 22 23 yeah drotty miles are 730 pace <laughs> i'm going to adopt that um yeah. <laughs> well let's hit a couple of the other events before talking about what you've been up to um women's 800 trials all three americans got through did you catch any of those races yeah i i saw all of them um and so yeah no no big surprises there i don't think they all seem to be pretty in control um if i'm remembering correctly yeah i kind of um was biting my bottom lip a little bit because Ajay Wilson was kind of far back with a hundred meters to go, but she put herself in position on the straightaway and got through without really much trouble, but she wasn't like right there, uh, which I thought she would have been, but didn't seem like she had any trouble making up ground. I think she just got a little bit boxed and needed some more running room. But otherwise, I mean, I think Mao, she looked amazing. Raven Rogers looked really good. Uh, I'm super excited for that event in particular um i feel like we've got an incredible team and it'd be amazing if they all made the final and we got you know two or three of them on the medal stand yeah i was going to say two two on the medal stand is definitely possible and who knows you know you could get three men's steeple heats did you catch those at all yes i caught most of them um yeah, that was kind of uh, that was kind of interesting. Like I was watching the first heat, and uh, I'm a big Mason Furlick fan, and Me too. you know, just kind of, just kind of to see him come off the back 
I wasn't really paying attention to the time. I was just like, oh, Mason, he's having a rough day, you know, like poor guy. Like I was really hoping he'd be up there. But then to see how fast the heat went and he ran sub 820, I forget exactly what he ran. Like he had a really good race. It just they decided to, you know, go full gas in the prelim. Um, I was surprised by that. Yeah, I was surprised by that, too. Um, I'm watching him run. I'm like, he's moving very, very well. But these guys are going pretty dang hard to get out of this heat. And it's just unfortunate that that's how it played out for him. Um, I was I was glad to see Katir get through on time. We've got at least one representative in the next round. I was, you know, I was really um I was really bummed for for Hillary. Um, I really I thought, I mean, I'm like, this is this is going to be it for him. Uh, he's going to have a great games, but unfortunately, just didn't come together for him. And um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it, his, his heat was totally cutthroat because they they let it go out slow. And so it was only going to be the top three auto qualifiers. And so at that point, you're basically running a final because you have to be in those top three spots and it just you know his kick just wasn't quite there in the last 50 um and that's yeah a brutal way to go out it's like that's a guy who if he would have snuck in the final probably a medal contender still but just the prelim didn't quite go his way yeah there were just too many guys together coming off of that final water jump and that was another one where i was just kind of like biting my bottom up i'm like oh, i don't know I'm, i don't know this doesn't look this doesn't look great um it's kind of a bummer and i saw his comments afterward and i have a lot of respect for that he's like you know i'm a lot fitter than that and i just didn't have it today uh and that's a bummer but you got to respect just the honesty of of something like that yeah for sure i mean that's that's sport that's the way it goes it's uh it's brutal, you know, but those are like the margins. That's how thin the margins are on that level, I think. Last one for the distances as of this conversation were the women's 5,000 meter prelims. Talk about fast prelims. Um, I mean, what heat was it? Heat one, I think it was, that went like sub 1450. Was that Hassan's heat? Um, I think like Schweitzer just, just got through. I was like, holy cow. I mean, these women are not messing around at all. It That seems to be kind of the theme of, of the year. It just like prelims are no longer just kind of sit and kick affairs for most people. Like people are showing up very much ready to you know, put up world-class times in prelims. And, and I don't remember that being the case. Yeah. I can't remember it being the case until recent memory. And I mean, as we talked about earlier, the conditions weren't great. So, I mean, maybe for someone like Hassan running, I mean, 1447 in those conditions, not going to take as much out of her as some of the women behind her who had to fight a lot harder just to, just to get through. Um, but I mean, it was just, I mean, that was just some crazy racing. And, and I got to correct myself. I mean, Schweitzer did get through. It was Rachel Schneider who didn't get through in her heat. I think she ran 15 flat um, and didn't, <laughs> didn't make it through. I mean, yeah, most incredible. other, cha- most other championships, I mean, 9.9 out of 10 times, that's going to get you through to the next round, but not at these games. Yeah, I'm curious to see if this is a trend that's going to continue like into the future um, or if this I don't I don't know. I don't know what we're seeing. I don't know if it's individual athletes who are really going after these prelims and kind of dragging everyone else along 
or maybe it's somehow related to shoe technology. Prelims just aren't beating people up as bad. Right. I have no, I have no idea. It, it's an interesting question. Well, thanks for humoring me. It was fun to geek out on some early Olympic stuff. I mean, maybe if people are into it, I'll have to get you back on uh, at the end of the week and we could do a, a wrap up show of, of some sorts and prognosticate and, you know, give our commentary on, on what went down in Tokyo. But as we were setting up this conversation, you had mentioned to me that I always seem to catch you at interesting points in your career. And then you alluded to the fact that you are starting a new job next week, which is this week um, as of the airing of this episode. So fill me in a little bit. What's going on in the world of Noah Drotti? Yeah, um, man, there's, there's kind of been like a lot of change in my life over the last um especially six weeks, but more so this year. Um, I mean, to your question, yeah, I'm starting a new job. I, I kind of, re- I'm still running. I'm not like announcing retirement or anything here. Um, but it became clear to me that waiting around for a professional running contract is just not like a healthy way for me to live anymore. And so I decided to be a little bit more proactive about um, finding ways to use my time and, and that meant like looking for jobs. I mean, also financial stability was a concern. And so anyway, an opportunity came up with uh, SOS. They're, they make a electrolyte um, hydration powder. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'll be I'll be working there as the warehouse manager next starting next week, um, which I'm super excited about. It's full time. It's going to be a major life adjustment, um, but it's a great opportunity. They take great care of employees. And so I'm excited to join that team. But yeah, lots changing for me or will be soon. That's super cool. Congratulations. And it makes me think of the last time we recorded a podcast together, which was three years ago. And I asked you in that episode, if you were giving any thought to what your non-running professional life would look like in the years to come. And at the time you had recently signed a contract with Saucony. You were essentially a full-time runner, not holding any other part-time jobs or anything like that. But you you had said just that. You're like, yeah, I'm thinking about that all the time and about all the connections that you've made just as an athlete with folks at, at different brands. And it, it's kind of cool to have this conversation and to look back on that one and see it play out that way. Yeah, definitely, you know, leverage connections to find this. And and honestly, I found it like very early into like sticking my toes in the water. And so, um, yeah, it just came up and I decided it was too good of an opportunity to pass up. I mean, to be totally honest with you, I didn't expect to really have to have these conversations with myself and really utilize my network for another few years like I'd really anticipated um, that I would have another running contract that would take me through the next Olympic cycle. Um, and so I kind of, you know, when I talked to you, I was like, yeah, I'm always doing that. I'm always thinking, and I, and I was, but I wasn't being super proactive. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh wait, this is happening right now. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so I kind of had to get going again, but, uh, yeah, I was lucky that this came up. Well, let's rewind to the end of last year. I mean, you finished second at the marathon project in Arizona. You're in 20909, huge breakthrough for you. A lot of times that's a good sign for an athlete at the end of a year, especially a contract year. And it gives you some leverage in terms of negotiations, or at least I presume it would give you some leverage in terms of negotiating a contract. Ultimately, you did not re-sign 
with Saucony, you have not announced any other major footwear or apparel sponsors since then. Take me through these last like six or seven months after that race and what some of those conversations have looked like and what have been some of the biggest hurdles you've had to try and clear. Yeah, it's a good question. It's a it's a big question. Um, it's been a really difficult seven months or so, to be honest with you. I really struggled with what professional sport is, where my place in the sport is, you know, what I want to do moving forward. But um, just, I mean, to for some background, I guess, yeah, my contract was up at the end of 2020. So basically 10 days after the marathon project, my contract was about to expire. Um, I was definitely aware of that. I knew that, you know, a good performance would set me up well. Um, you know, I know athletes get cut. I figured if I went to Arizona, I ran 216, whatever, after a year of not racing, there was a good chance I'd be, you know, I'd be moved along. <laughs> but, you know, to go out there and have, you know, a U.S. top 10 all-time performance and after 13 months of not racing to come out and run 455 pace for 26 and a quarter miles, I really thought, um, yeah, I really thought that would be that would be a performance that spoke for itself. I was, you know, envisioning a golden briefcase waiting for me at the <laughs> at the finish line with a fresh contract. But, uh, you know, for reasons I just I don't totally understand. Um, that's not what happened. Um, you know, communication just really broke down. I, w- I was kind of made an offer by Saucony, but it amounted to what would have been a pay reduction over what I'd been making in 2020 and 2019. And, uh, that just didn't feel right to me. It didn't sit right. I, I thought I deserved better. Um, but that, that ended up being the final offer. I mean, communication totally broke down after that. Um, which is really disheartening for me because I didn't understand it. I really felt entitled, um, to a contract. I felt like I deserved it. Um, and I was really motivated to stay with Saucony. I had really bought into the, uh, you know, the, the Saucony family thing. I thought I was really valued there. Um, and it, but it was, yeah, it was a harsh reality to come away from that and realize that, you know, professional sports are, are brutal. Like you are to some extent, a commodity, like, you know, these people are not, <laughs> not your family. They're not your friends. Um, you're there to do a job and, I just didn't fit into what they were planning with marketing uh, or their athlete moving athlete department moving forward. And so that, that's been really hard to process. And to be honest, it's like it's something I'm still processing. And it's one reason why I really just felt like I needed to look for, you know, a job or something to be excited about because it it keeps me from having that thought spiral as to like, why am I not? employed by a shoe company after running so well, you know? And not only that, I mean, you have certainly proved your mettle on the roads and certainly with that particular performance and others, but you did a lot of other stuff for the brand. I think back to our last conversation, we talked about the ad that you filmed for them. We talked about just some of the other initiatives that you were involved in. I mean, from my vantage point, I think you've done a great job off the roads of being an incredible brand ambassador, connecting with people in your community, connecting with fans of the sport, which we all know is a part of the job. I mean, we talked about how an athlete really works in marketing for 
a brand and and it does make you just like shake your head at it and you're like well what more does someone have to do if you can do all of those things and perform and they don't seem to value quite what you were doing yeah i mean i felt i definitely felt utilized by the brand i thought we did some some cool stuff together um you know and i really thought there was a path forward but i mean the thing to understand is that there was really only it's not like there's a company meeting where they make these decisions. It's a, it's only one guy who is signing and or passing on athletes. And, um, you know, he might just, he just had a different vision of athletes he wanted or where he wanted the budget to go. And if you don't fit into that, I mean, there's not really a case you can make it just, you're just, you know, you're just done. And, you know, so that happened to me. It happened to, to Molly Seidel, um, been true, you know, who I thought had really earned the right to retire with Saucony um, was kind of was cut too. And so, yeah, it was just a very confusing time for all of us. I think it caught us uh, off guard for sure. Did it open up any other opportunities or at least conversations with different brands about partnering or did a lot of that fall flat as well? It's a good question. It's, uh, you know, for people to understand how this works, you know, I, ha I have an agent who is having those conversations. And so, you know, a lot of what I hear is secondhand through the filter of an agent. Um, and so, yeah, brand, like, as, as far as I know, talks were happening, but just not going anywhere. And so that that was probably the hardest part of the last six months is, you know, you get on the phone um, with your agent and Josh is a friend of mine. And so I'm not trying to sound critical here, um, but you hear, oh, so and so is interested. Like, I think we can get something done by the end of the week. And then a month goes by and you hear nothing. Or so it's, it's this constant cycle of, oh, we're talking to this person. They're interested. You know, your hopes, your hopes kind of go up. You're imagining a future with a certain brand or whatever. And then and then the cord just gets cut and there's nothing and there's no resolution to it. And so it was just this kind of, it was a very difficult cycle to like hear good news and then nothing would come of it. Um, you know, a lot of it, it was like, could I have signed a low ball contract with somebody for 20 K a year and, and shoes? Like, absolutely. But I also don't believe in devaluing myself and bringing down the whole market. Like I think athletes are worth something. I, think I have a pretty good idea of what I'm worth. And I wasn't really, really willing to compromise that just to get a deal. Um, you know, I'd rather take nothing than a quarter of what I'm worth. You mentioned how you were confused by it all. You just put up the performance of your life right before your contract is about to expire. You've done a lot for the brand, can understand why there isn't a path forward. How else were you feeling coming off the high of, of an incredible performance and huge breakthrough for you in the marathon with, you know, balancing that with, you know, the, the uncertainty as to like, well, what else do I have to do to make a career of, of this? Like, is that not, is that not good enough? Should I just hang it up or do I keep charging forward in the hopes that it leads to something? Yeah, I've really had to separate the performance from the idea of getting a contract. I really have had to acknowledge that I don't know how athletes get contracts. I don't know how that process works. I thought I knew what it took. I don't know what it takes. Like my, my teammate and friend, Frank Lara is without a contract and he's been on fire for two years. 
Um, and so I really had to disassociate from this idea that performance, you know, professional level performances led to professional level contracts. And, and to be honest, that was really, really difficult and still is for me in the aftermath of the marathon project, because that was a huge motivating factor for me. Like, um, before I signed my contract with Saucony, I ran a half marathon in New York and I towed the line that day thinking that like, if I ran 61 minutes, it'd be enough to get a contract. And I was just, you know, feeling that fire of motivation and I made it happen. I ran 61, I signed with Saucony and going into the marathon project, I was like, okay, if I have a great race and run 210, which I thought I could run 210, like, I'll get my deal extended. I'll continue being a professional. I was really just motivated by the idea of being a professional. Like that is where my identity went. I wasn't really doing it for me as much as I was doing it because it was my job, um, which may sound bad to some people, but I really, that worked for me. Um, and so, yeah, I was disappointed <laughs> in the aftermath to have those two things not go together anymore. At any point in the last seven months, have you had thoughts of hanging it up as a professional slash elite athlete? Yeah, con yeah, absolutely constantly. Um, it's been, you know, it's really hard to, when things get tough in a workout um, and you're asking your, everyone, everyone who asks themselves those questions, like, why am I doing this? Like, I don't have to do this, you know, <laughs> like, and, and all of a sudden I didn't have the answer that I used to have, which was, oh, this is my job. This is how, you know, this is how I pay my rent. This is how I'm going to support my family. Like, you know, I, all of a sudden the, the answers I always had ready in those moments were gone. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's been a really slow process and I'm just now really trying to channel Noah Drotti from 2016 when my objective moving out here was just to get better because I love training and I didn't know where my limit was. And so that's the mindset I'm trying to get back into. I think it was also difficult for me to run 209.09 because, um, you know, that's faster than I, Mario, that's faster than I ever thought I was going to run. You know, that like, I never imagined running a time like that. And so now I have to convince myself, oh, I'm a 208 guy, you know, to, to feel that same level of motivation. And uh, yeah, 209 still doesn't feel real to me. And so like 208, I'm like, this is, this is kind of crazy. But um, yeah, just in the last, especially after this job um, that I'm going to start came in, came into view and I committed to that. Um, I'm putting running back in like the serious hobby box that it was for me when I was first successful. And so it's, it's not going to be, you know, my bread and butter the way it was over the last three years, but I want it to be my sincere passion project the way it was before. And so, yeah, I still have competitive goals. I signed a fall marathon contract, um, and I intend to make good on that. And so I think just the scope of my career has really been narrowed now to where I'm always looking at the next race, the next race, the next race. And, you know, there's a thought in my head that each one could be, could be it. I'm still, you know, hopeful to partner with a brand and I, I would really welcome that opportunity. And if somebody came to me and said, Hey, here's four years, I'd take it in a heartbeat. I'd commit to that. No problem. But in my current situation, yeah, I'm living race to race. 
does that shift or or shift back to the Noah Drati of a few years ago feel refreshing at all, despite the frustrations of not being able to sign a professional contract? I think it's going to feel refreshing. I think I'm really just in the early stages of this. I mean, this is like a thought process that I just started to outline to myself like last week, you know. Um, and so I'm still trying to turn off that kind of negative cyclical thinking of like, mm-hmm. I deserve a contract. Why don't I have a contract? What's wrong with these people? You know, the, these thoughts that have just been swirling, like, what am I going to do that have just been swirling in my head for like, I've established these negative thought patterns for like six months now. And so now I need to work out of that because it's not serving me at all. Um, and so, yeah, I think kind of reframing it and being like, going back to the hungry upstart um, amateur mindset is going to be really good for me and I'll get there. I'm just not all the way there quite yet. Is that emblematic of your group as well? Roots running, having that sort of hungry chip on your shoulder type of, of attitude, like, Hey, we're here busting our asses. We're trying to like, you know, be impactful here in this sport and we get overlooked by, by brands all the time, but Hey, we're just going to, we're just going to do what we can do and prove it out on the track or on the roads. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, in the history of the group now, I'm, I'm the only athlete who's had, you know, a full on shoe deal. Um, and I think we've had three or four athletes who have Mm -hmm. deserved it and nobody and again i'm bringing up frank because i'm so adamant that somebody needs to sign this guy like he deserves it more than anybody on the circuit um and so yeah i think we do come to practice and you know we have guys on on the team who are not deserving of pro contracts but are training at a high level just so they can take their marathon pb from 217 to 213 and and that's always been really motivating for me it's like we're all just showing up because we love to do this and we have big racing goals. And, you know, after practice, they all, and now we all go to work, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, that's, that's different than a lot of the the pro groups in the country. And I think we're one of the best pro groups in the country. I don't think we get much credit for it. No, I don't think you guys get nearly enough credit for it. And maybe some of that is because there is no big title sponsor, behind it i mean i i don't know what it is i i don't know i shake my head at this sort of stuff like like all the time i mean just in boulder alone there are a number of incredible pro groups right so maybe it's easy to get overshadowed but i mean frank's a freaking national champion (laughs) i mean you're one of the fastest american marathoners of all time i mean alia gray had a freaking amazing season and no one's really talking about it um i I don't know i mean it just like it kind of like boggles my mind and and obviously it boggles yours as well. And I mean, it makes me wonder about the future viability of the sport at a professional level. I mean, if you can have groups that are this good and if you can have people that are competing this well and posting incredible times, but, you know, are are having to like, I don't want to say scrape by to to compete at that level, but it's it's not you know, it's not a straightforward path. It's not an easy path. Like, what does that mean for the the long-term outlook of the sport at the professional level? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, just to, to wrap up roots, I, I don't think anyone, any other group has done more with less um, than we have. Um, and that's something I'm super proud of. Um, anyway, final point on that. But yeah, I'm not super optimistic about like the, about, you know, the professionalism 
of the sport going forward. I mean, it's it's a professional sport for a very tiny percentage of the athletes. Um, I was lucky enough to make pretty good money in 2019 and 2020 through the marathons, but you know, most most athletes on shoe deals are making, you know, I, I'd say 90% are making less than 50k a year off their shoe deals, which is a 1099. So they're they're shipping 15% of that off to their agents. They're shipping another, I don't know, 30% or something, 20, 30% off to taxes. Taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have athletes who, at the end of the day, are taking home 20k, 25k, um, and it's not viable for very long. You know, especially when athletes get a little older, they think about having families. It's just like after a while, it just you're like, man, I could get an entry level job and be making twice this. Um, you know, the stars are making good money for sure. And and if you're a good marathoner, you're going to make good money. I mean, the majority of my yearly pay came from marathons, not necessarily my contract. Right. Um, and so. Yeah, I'm not super optimistic, especially now that we see guys who deserve contracts not getting them. And a lot of the people who are signing contracts, I would imagine, are signing for below their normal market value. That's how they're getting the contracts. And so, at least in the short term, it doesn't make me feel very good. I mean, it's, it's not cut and dry. Like, if you're the, if you're the fifth best quarterback coming out of college, you're going to get picked up because you're one of the best quarterbacks. But you could be one of the best runners and maybe nobody's interested just because you don't fit into a marketing scheme. Uh, And that's hard for me to understand. One of the last times we talked, you told me that, you know, you feel like in terms of the time on your legs and just the mental energy you put into the sport at that point. I mean, I think you were 26, 27 at the time that you could stretch this out for a while as long as it's still fun. Um, despite all the stuff that we've been talking about, which doesn't sound very fun at all. Like, how are you thinking about the, the next few years in terms of going after goals is, is keeping it fun, the goal, or are there still some things that you really want to check off the list before you call it a career? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, keeping it fun is always, is always the best thing and it's you know when i was hating running earlier this year and when i was in really dark spots with contract stuff like i still loved going to practice and that and like i loved running with my friends even if the workouts didn't go great like just the camaraderie of my teammates was was awesome and so yeah that really kept me in it like i was just thinking today like i wonder if i if i was like a lone wolf type i think i definitely would have retired um but it was this realization like, oh, the three hour, two, three hours of practice is the absolute best part, you know, of my day most of the time. I just I just love being there. And so the work would take care of itself. Um, and so it's always been fun. That part has always been fun. And I think as I distance myself from this professional pressure that I've put on myself, it'll get easier. And, um, you know, in terms of goals, I'm really not thinking beyond this year. Uh, I just need to have a narrow scope just for my own sanity, I think, until my future is more certain. But, yeah, I'm going to run another marathon in the fall. Um, and I think I've proven that I'm one of the fastest American marathoners. But now I want to prove that I'm one of the best American marathoners. Like, And I think to do that, you have to finish highly at big races. And so, 
yeah, my goals moving forward are going to be more about placement than they are time, I think. That 209.09, as you mentioned, made you one of the fastest American male marathoners of, of all time. I mean, you'd run, what, three, I think, before that, maybe four? Uh, yes, finished four, started five, if you include the 2016 trials. Right. What did you learn from those experiences that you were able to put into practice at the marathon project that helped lead to that big breakthrough, whether it was something in training that finally clicked leading up to that race or in the execution of it itself? Yeah, my, I mean, my training was great. Um, so, but, you know, my training was also great before my second marathon in Rotterdam where I ran 219. Um, so, yeah, I'm trying to, I feel like Chicago in 2019 was really my first marathon in a lot of ways. That's when I ran 211. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like eighth American or something. It was a really fast day um, where Jake was top American. Um, that was the first day I felt like I really had put together a marathon, felt what it was like to race over 26 miles. And I, I think I wrote on Instagram or something like, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm in the arena of my ability. I'm just like not on the field yet. I knew, I knew in that, on that day what I could be capable of um, if things went my way, cause it was the first time things had started to go my way. And so at the marathon project, I had this confidence that I could, you know, I wasn't as afraid of the later miles as I used to be. And I also went into that race with this mentality of like, I'm just going to run 455 pace until I absolutely can't anymore. And if I blow up, like, I don't care, <laughs> you know, I was just like, this is such a great opportunity. This is not a place to like go out and play it safe. Um, and I just got lucky enough that it was one of those days where, you know, your ambition matches up to your ability on the day. And so, um, yeah, I feel like I can legitimately call myself a marathoner now. I just think the next frontier is taking, you know, a performance like that and applying it to, you know, a competitive race on a major stage. Was there any point during the marathon project where you were like, eh, I don't know if I can hold this 455 pace anymore, or was it more of a feeling of like, oh man, I'm I'm like feeling it today. Like, let's just kind of keep this rolling and see how fast I can go. No, it's like, it's a constant process of asking yourself if you can, I mean, I remember, I remember going, we went through the mile and like. 501 or something and somebody in the back of the pack was like pick it up pick it up and i remember just like grabbing frank and being like do not pick it up (laughs) like like we are fine like things are going fine and um you know but it's just like a five minute mile is always hard mario it doesn't matter if you can run 20 of them like the one is still hard like your heart rate is up you're still breathing and so yeah especially it's i think it's the early miles especially where i'm just like man, is this, is this too much? Like, I really don't feel great. You know, it's like, but you can't concentrate so much on how you feel. You have to concentrate on what's actually happening. And we had, um, a lead vehicle with us the whole way. And every mile we went by, um, I think it was James and Curdy stick his head out the window and he'd go 458, 458 mile 17 or, and I just found that, you know, every mile that went by, I wasn't looking at my watch, but I was hearing the feedback from the truck and it kind of validated what I was feeling. If I was like, oh man, that mile was a little harder. I'd hear 452. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. Um, And I just started, you know, getting into this rhythm of hearing those splits and finding confidence in those splits. And, 
you know, after you get to a certain point in the race, my focus really just shifted to to not fucking it up. I was just like, okay, you know, I've I've come this far and I'm not going to quit now. And I was really motivated by that idea of not quitting because I've done so much work. Why am I going to quit in the last three miles or four miles or whatever? And so at that point, I just kind of went all in. Um, but no, I never felt great. It was just kind of a rolling sense of momentum, I guess. Was there any point at the end there where you flipped the switch into race mode and it wasn't so much about the mile splits anymore? It was seeing if you could win the damn thing? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, especially when Martin made his move, um, you know, a handful of miles out. I forget exactly where it, where it happened, but, you know, no one really made any move until like mile 20. And then there were like some kind of feeble attempts of guys to go off the front. But nobody was, I mean, nobody had ever moved off that kind of pace before. Um, and so when Martin made his move, I knew that was that was for real because he's done that to me before. Um, but I I don't know. I just lost focus for a second and realized that he had opened up quite quite a sizable gap. And at that point, I just started, you know, trying to maintain my pace, hoping he would come back a little. And then I kind of had that sensation of realizing that I couldn't hear footsteps anymore, that there was nobody else around me. Um, and I kind of glanced back, realized I was in a pretty solid second place. I think I'd go on to finish second by like 20 or 30 seconds, maybe. Um, and so at that point you're in second, there's not really anybody threatening you from behind. You're only, you're only, you know, the only mission is to move up. And so, yeah, I started, I started focusing on Martin and, um, I felt like here and there I'd get a little closer. I could see him coming back. But at that point I was getting so nauseous and my stomach was really leaving me that it, I was really towing a line between like implosion, you know, and just like getting to the line. And so, yeah, I was kind of limited in, in that way. But, uh, you know, since I finished uh, in second by 10 seconds and uh, I'm not sure I could have gotten it all back, uh, even if I was feeling a little better. You famously puked up a lot of sports drink right after you crossed the finish line. Did you did you feel that coming down the straightaway? Like at some point I'm going to throw up and it's either going to be before or after the line. But let me see if I can hold on here for a few more seconds. For sure. Yeah, that's not really an uncommon reaction in me, like in these long efforts. Uh, I think I've thrown up after every marathon. Um, but yeah, I actually I actually threw up with like 200 to go. Um, but no, but nobody saw that. I just threw up over my shoulder and, and was able to, <laughs> able to keep going. Um, but as soon as I stopped, I mean, people who, I think people who have run marathons know this feeling like your body has been in motion for so long, you know, like two hours, three hours, four hours, whatever. And then when you all of a sudden stop, I mean, it's kind of that sensation of like getting off a train or like being on a boat all day and still feeling the waves. It's like, as soon as I, my feel like, yeah. yeah, as soon as my my momentum stopped, I was like, oh man, I'm getting sick. Um, but yeah, worst I felt after a marathon, I was in shambles for uh, for days after that. I couldn't eat that day. I wouldn't eat anything after the race that day. You mentioned how you heard throughout those 452, 458, 456 splits. So you were aware that you were running super fast. But when you saw the clock, or maybe afterward realized that you had run 209 low did it take a second for it to settle in or were you like holy shit i just did that type of situation 
Yeah, it, it was just kind of this moment where you're like, man, I really have to change how I perceive myself. Like, that is an elite time. <laughs> you know, that's a really fucking good time. And, uh, you know, I didn't really identify it, identify with it. I still don't know if I've totally, you know, identified with it. But in the moment, I knew that I could do that. Like, at the start line, I knew that I had it within myself to run that pace for that long on a good day and so it wasn't i don't know it's hard to explain because it's not in that way it wasn't surprising but then to see it on a result sheet and just think about the year i'd had going into it not racing at all you know just the year that everybody'd had going into it and just this relief of being able to capitalize on an opportunity and make the most out of this day and you know, in my mind at the time was like, this is the only opportunity I have to like save my professional career. And in the immediate aftermath, I really thought I'd done that. And so all those feelings just kind of came on me at once. And uh, yeah, I was definitely just like laying there crying for a while after that. Perhaps most impressively, fastest D3 marathoner of all time ahead of Bill Rogers now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people are going to say it's the shoes. Uh, and maybe, maybe it is, who knows, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that's super cool. And then I think maybe even more meaningful to me was that I set the, uh, I took the Indiana record away from Rudy Chapa and, uh, my dad is like so stoked about that. <laughs> Aside from some of the turbulence, let's call it of, of the last seven months that you've described, there've been some great things that have happened in your life as well. I mean, you're starting a new job, this week, you recently got married. It sounds to me like you're starting to play more frequently with your band again. Tell me about those those other things, those non-running related things, and you know how your relationship with them has evolved over the past six, seven months. Yeah, I mean, outside of my like professional running life, things have been going like pretty amazing <laughs> in my life. Uh, yeah, just. Uh, about a month ago, and then I got married, um, which, uh, yeah, is awesome. It just, uh, she's just such an amazing person. I'm so lucky to have her in my life. And, you know, our relationship hasn't always been easy. We've gotten through a lot of difficult things together. And then to finally, like, make our commitment official in that way, like, I think it was more meaningful than I expected it to be. I wasn't like a big marriage guy. You know, um, but to have that ceremony with our friends and family at home in Indiana, at home in Indiana was just a really amazing experience. And uh, yeah, to look forward to the rest of our lives together is uh, super exciting to me. It's awesome. Um, sorry, I'm ranting. But uh, yeah, so marriage is great. Um, we moved into a new place in Boulder that's much nicer than our old place. Um I finished recording an album with Barry Mia, which is really cool. Uh, yeah, that's taken up more and more of my time. I'm, you know, we've got shows coming up this summer. And so, you know, digging back into that musical outlet that I had when I was a teenager and in college has been really fun for me to go back to it in later life, for sure. Do you think not only having those, but being able to kind of compartmentalize them in some ways? I mean, you and Emma have your life together, things that you like to do, which includes running on some level um you're able to go play with your bandmates on a weekly 
basis. I mean, I remember one of our last conversations, you talked about how you have this ability to, you know, when you're running, just focus on running. And then when the workout is over, I can move on to the next thing. It sounds like maybe some of that was lost over the last few years that you were just, or mostly I should say, focused on running. But now, as we talked about earlier, going back to Noah of a few years ago, being able to kind of like compartmentalize those things um, will just help you to move on in this, in this next phase of your life and to not only move on, but really thrive in all of those different areas. Yeah, for sure. I I think I let maybe too much of my self-worth get tied up in my running performances and not only my running performances, but how those performances were, you know, I, I took validation in the fact that I was a sponsored athlete or like these things that didn't really, weren't even necessarily in my control. Like a lot of the times I took a lot of my self-worth from that and when those things aren't going the way you'd expect that can be really hard and so i think you know joining the band and playing with the band uh you know forging ahead with my life with emma and setting things up there um you know i'd be remiss if i didn't mention my my podcast d3 glory days which is now in its third year um definitely check it out yeah please uh we move that to a weekly show and to be honest uh it's been more it's been more successful than I would have ever expected for such a niche podcast. And so that's been really fun and fulfilling work to do. So yeah, I have these other things in my life that I'm super excited about and that I like pouring energy into into. And I found that it hasn't taken away from my running at all. Like if anything, it's augmented the experience. And so I'm also hoping, you know, starting to work a job will have that same effect even though my days will be busier my time running will be more significant to me and i'll come to enjoy it more and so yeah it's like that that's how it always was for me was you know doing other things but still being really dedicated to running and then slowly all those other things fell away as i got better at running and so now i want to be good at running and have all those things too (laughs) a more well-rounded noah drati I hope so. Why do you think so many runners struggle with the self-worth and identity aspect of things, whether they're professionals competing at an elite level like you are, or just age groupers who take their hobby very seriously? Because I see it a lot in my community and also athletes that I coach. And honestly, I've struggled with it myself over the years. I think it's because we're always measuring ourselves. Everything we do is measured. You know, it's, you you go out for an easy run, you see your pace, you compare it to how fast you ran yesterday. You go to a race, you finish 10th or you're a minute off your PB or you PB by a minute and you're ecstatic. Like you're always comparing yourself to who you were yesterday and who you want to be in the future. And then while you're comparing yourself to you, you're also comparing yourself to other people who are doing the same things that you do. And you see, you know, so-and-so run amazing. You're like, oh, that's great. But like, why am I not running amazing? You know, and so you're, you're just always asking yourself these questions. And I think measuring yourself in that way really leads you to, yeah, it's not to prescribe too much self-worth to the numbers and just being like, okay, if I, if I could just run 210 in the marathon, I'll be happier, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it's, it doesn't feel that way because then you run 210 and you were fifth. And somebody else ran 209 or whatever. Um, So it's hard. It's just the nature of our sport is that we're always 
measuring ourselves against each other and ourselves. And if you're not in a good place with that, it can be, uh, you know, you can kind of go down a rabbit hole. I appreciate that perspective. Thank you. Last question. Same question I've asked you the last two times I've interviewed you. You have to give a different answer this time because your answer was exactly the same uh, both times I asked you. And that's what's exciting you in running right now. Last two times you've answered it was just the state of American marathoning and that we're on the cusp of breaking through and as we I, talked I about during right, this Mario. you were right. right i mean you were very <laughs> prophetic in in your answer and not only that you were a part of it um yeah last december with all those guys who who had run under 210 at the marathon project so you're not allowed to answer with that anymore but at this at this stage uh here we are mid 2021 olympics are going on right now you are entering a new phase of your career what's exciting noah Drotti about running right now i'm excited for running to get back to normal uh <laughs> you know like we're we're starting to see mass participation events coming back um you know the majors are back on are back this fall um you know hopefully everything is scheduled and so i'm just really excited to see everybody back out at large running events um and seeing where everyone has come out of the pandemic i mean we've had events like the marathon projects and stuff like that but to a large extent the road community hasn't really been racing each other um and so i'm excited to see what kind of energy people bring to the circuit when it reopens um, I think we're going to see a lot of really fast running. I think we're going to see people trying to make up for lost time, um, both in the marathon and other events. I think we saw it on the track already. Um, and so I think that energy is going to come to the roads as they open. I love it. I can't wait to take part in some of that energy myself. I hope to see you at a major marathon this fall. Always fun talking to you. Noah Drotty, thanks for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mario. Thank you so much for listening in to the Morning Shakeout podcast. A big thank you to both New Balance and Gooder for sponsoring this episode of the show. The Fuel Cell Rebel V2 is my new favorite running shoe. It's super light, it's incredibly responsive, and offers good protection underfoot. I think it's the perfect workout shoe, and I will be using it all the time. Check it out today at newbalance.com and consider adding a pair to your rotation. Gooder sunglasses are just the best. Not only do they look good, they don't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. Best of all, they come in a number of awesome styles and colors. I'm personally a big fan of the OGs, and my favorite colors are Ginger's Soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. If you'd like to support me in the podcast, treat yourself to a pair or two or maybe three of Gooders and head over to gooder.com slash Mario and get 15% off your entire order. That's G-O-O-D-R dot com slash Mario. That's M-A-R-I-O to get 15% off your order. Your face will thank you. A couple more things before we wrap up. I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my longtime producer, John Summerford, who makes every episode of the podcast sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for running the AM Shakeout social media accounts and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. Last thing, if you are digging this podcast, I think you will love my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout, and you can subscribe to it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. 
Every Tuesday morning, you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to. It's a quick read, five, 10 minutes tops, but it will give you plenty to think about throughout the rest of the week. Again, you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thank you.